energy. Welcome to the Activated Authors Podcast, a show where we distill the core principles of what it takes to become a happy, healthy, and productive author, no matter what stage of the journey you're at. I'm your host, Daniel Wilcox. I'm an international best-selling author, as well as an author coach, speaker, and creative entrepreneur. But most importantly, I'm a lifelong student of all things productivity, psychology, and human behavior. Thank you for joining me for today's episode. Without further ado, let's dive in. What is up, Activators? Welcome to another episode of the Activated Authors Podcast. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by the incomparable Helen Scheurer. Helen is the YA fantasy author of the best-selling series, The Oromir Chronicles and The Curse of the Siren Queen. Her work has been highly praised for its strong, flawed female characters and its action-packed plots. Helen holds a Bachelor of Creative Writing and a Master's of Publishing. Now a full-time author, Helen lives amidst the mountains in central Otago, New Zealand, and is constantly dreaming up new stories. Helen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. I'm excited to have you and to sit down and actually go into some formal conversation about your stuff because we've spoken a fair bit offline about your journey and the things that you're doing over the last year and like you are involved in quite a lot and I think there's going to be quite a lot to dig into um, but one place I want to start is uh, we briefly touched on just before we started talking what is it that made you pursue your Bachelor of Creative Arts because I've, I've got a real thing in my head where I really want one but I'm already writing and so I'm wondering yeah. like how what kind of value that brings and, and the reason that you pursued that in the first place? Um, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a really interesting conversation about university degrees and the creative arts, but um, it's a pretty simple answer for me. There was just nothing else I wanted to do at uni and I knew I wanted to go to uni, but it had to be for something that I was passionate about, that I was interested in. I couldn't really see myself, you know, studying for three years anything else you know it's, it's a commitment and also not to mention the financial commitment of it as well um so yeah I had uh, I had several arguments with my parents over that actually when I was well I must have been about 18 17 at the time um but yeah I just I just decided that I wanted to do that um and couldn't imagine doing anything else and it was it was really valuable in that um you know we we studied a lot of incredible literature um it did sort of open your eyes to having to write to a routine and submit to deadline and things like that. Um, I guess what I've kind of realised in hindsight is that it was quite limiting in terms of the genre that we studied, which was no genres. It was just classics and it was just uh, literary fiction. Um, Mm. And it was very much, I mean, as you can imagine, it was just very much traditional based publishing talk there was no mention of indie publishing um and also throughout the three years of studying we were just told oh you can never make a living <laughs> as a wow. writer but here yeah but here study three years about how to be a writer wow um, <laughs> yeah so I mean it, it was I, I don't regret doing it um but sort of like you said you're you're already writing um and I think any sort of incredibly valuable experience that I'm using now I gained through doing and learning myself and educating myself and you know you're you you do a lot of that um and I I kind of struggle to think back to how the university would have been able to offer the same sort of learning experiences that we create for ourselves as indies if that makes sense yeah I love that and that's oh that's really interesting as well because obviously um it's very specifically a bachelor of creative writing I did um, bachelor's sort of joint honours in English and drama. And although when I went to university, it was because I wanted to become an English teacher. I, I don't know why. It's because I had a really good English teacher that basically inspired me and brought me into actually enjoying the process of writing. Um, but I, I studied for three years and I can't really tell you anything that we we wrote. There wasn't, unless you were on the full course, there was, there was only one creative writing elective module. And I often say to people, because people are like, oh, you write because, you know, you've got a degree in English. And I, I go, well, no, because we studied Georgian literature, psychoanalytic, um, uh, what's the word, like Freudian theory and sort of critical analysis and things. And there was very, very little in the way of what I use now to actually write books, because it's all very contempt- uh, all very historical literature. Yeah. Um, and I find that very, very interesting that in the creative writing bachelor, that they don't give you some more of that contemporary stuff, more of the... Like, I, I think it sounds good that they taught you, you know, the actual practice of writing. I mean, how did that how did that look within the course itself? And then what elements of that have you lifted to bring into your your process at the minute? 
Um, how did it look at the time? I mean, the I guess the subjects were split up into um, prose, poetry, screenwriting, and you had to do um, a core unit of each of those and then sort of specialise in one alongside doing, I mean, I can't remember the name of it, but like classic literature or, mm. you know, sort of an essay-based, research-based subject as well. Um, and then you could minor in something like editing or philosophy or, you know. Um, but, yeah, it would involve, um, you know, getting an assignment, writing a short story, um, bringing it into workshop. I suppose that's really, now that I'm, I'm talking, getting more into it, um, the workshopping aspects of the degree was probably the biggest takeaway from it. Mm. Um, lear learning how to take criticism, learning how to give criticism, um, you know, being able to bounce around ideas with other writers and I guess also learn who to listen to and who not to listen to, um, I think is quite valuable. <laughs> that's <laughs> um, huge. <laughs> so yeah. So that's probably more so than any sort of style I took away or any sort of, um, I don't know, how to write a book lessons because we mm. certainly didn't even dive into a longer form um, work of any kind. But um, definitely taking away how to take criticism, how to give it, um, because you need that in like no matter what path you go down, whether it's trad or indie, um, you're going to get criticised at some point, no matter how good you are. So, mm. um, yeah, I'd say that's probably the, the biggest takeaway from it. Oh, I love that. There's so much in that, especially listening to the right people. One thing that I come up against a lot is um, I do get asked my advice a lot on sort of book covers for different genres. And as a horror writer and, you know, someone who's done some nonfiction as well, um, when people send me or like ask me directly to judge like a, a fantasy cover or like a mystery thriller cover for, or like a, um, just any different genre, like a romance, like I can I can tell when a cover looks pretty and I can tell sort of like the main because I have a little bit of a background in design, but like. I can tell sort of the basis of it, but I always say to the people like I'm not from your genre. So you will yeah. probably know better. Like take what I say with a pinch of salt. Um, listening to the right person is just so, so vital. Um, just across all, all parts of, of especially self-publishing, but I think just creative writing in general. Um, and then you went on to do your masters of publishing. What does that, what does that look mm. like? <laughs> um, God, what, what did it look like? Um, so basically, I guess it was, and this was very much um, traditionally focused. There was, again, no talk of indie publishing. Something I would love to do is potentially go to a uni and do like guest lectures on the subject because it's just so, um, it's just not even spoken about. It's not even an option in either the creative writing degree or the Masters of Publishing. But what Masters of Publishing did was that it gave me a really in-depth overview of the entire like publishing system um, so within a publishing house or whether you're dealing with literary agencies um, and the part that I found the most fascinating was the book production process which as an indie like you're part of it from the beginning to the end so that was really valuable to me um, and yeah just you know the different departments in a publishing house which also as an indie you are all those departments um, so I got a lot out of the publishing masters just in terms of sort of practical knowledge and having the awareness that I could actually take on board all of these things and have a really thorough in-depth understanding mm. um, of the different stages of production of the editorial stages um, and yeah I mean we did we did subjects like uh, like magazine design as well so it was all different sorts of um, publishing but um yeah we, we did that we did editing um so I think more so than the creative writing degree the masters of publishing really sort of um gave me a leg up in terms of understanding you know the broader machine that is publishing if that makes sense yeah yeah I mean that's um a hell of a rounded way to to get involved in this process because mm. I think a lot of people come to independent publishing by having written a story and then going I'll figure out the rest later um but obviously you seem to have gone through the formal education route managed to get this entire um comprehensive look at what the publishing process looks like were you writing at this point when was it that you started sort of you know penning your first stories and were you using that knowledge as you were learning it or was this sort of later um it's it's all kind of a bit uh, of a mishmash really because um when I did my creative writing degree like I was 18 19 when I started that um and one thing I will say about that is it 
very much geared its students towards being literary and being, you know, serious mm-hmm. fiction. Um, and I, being very impressionable at the time, you know, decided, well, if I'm going to be taken seriously, I have to write literary fiction. So I, I wrote a, a literary fiction manuscript um, while I was at my first degree. Um, I worked on it for years. I got a... Um, I got a publishing contract with a small press in Melbourne and worked with the publisher for, it must have been like two years. And while I was doing my master's, I think, um, I was having a really hard time with, with this particular publisher. Not like they were nasty or anything, but I could, I think my gut was telling me it was going nowhere. And that the, they were trying to start changing my voice in the editing stages and, it was just, it, it began to feel like sort of pulling teeth and sort of in order to escape that, I started writing young adult fantasy um, just for fun. And I did NaNoWriMo in, uh, must have been 2016. And so while I was doing these degrees, I was kind of going through all of that. Um, and then the sort of like the, the best thing that could have happened happened where the publisher reverted the rights back to me of that. Um, original literary fiction book and like that that was not the book I was meant to write I was trying to fit to a certain mold that I'd been told was the you know the acceptable thing Um, and really when I started writing the fantasy I was like why haven't I been doing this the whole time like it make it it sounds like so stupid now like of course why wasn't I writing what I love reading but you know you sort of just get molded in a certain way Um, but yeah, once I started that uh, fantasy, um, I knew pretty much then that I was going to independently publish publish that just because the experience with the trad publisher had just been so unnecessarily long-winded and inefficient and frustrating. Um, and yeah, then I, I think because I'd done the masters, I'd run a website for writers in the past and I published some creative writing anthologies. So I'd done book production on a practical level as well already. And I felt pretty confident that I could put together a professional product. Um, And yeah, then that's, so it all was kind of happening at the same time. And now I forget the original question. (laughs) No, that's perfect. So one thing that you've mentioned a couple of times that um, like, I think is really, really important is, so you, you mentioned that you'd love to go to, like universities and and speak on self-publishing I've given a couple of guest lectures myself at um, my local mm. university about self-publishing and the fact that it's an option and I find it because we're in the bubble of obviously people who know about self-publishing independent publishing I think yeah. once you get entrenched in this you get very um you forget, you forget that, that, it's, that yeah <laughs> it's not it's not widespread knowledge and I've gone into classes before sort of 30 40 students and at the beginning I'll say like has anyone here ever considered self-publishing and you get like one or two hands and then by the end of the presentation where I show like real examples of authors that are doing it of like ways that you can take control and do it your own way and do the stuff that you love, you get, even then it's weird because you only get like maybe 10, 15 hands and you'd expect mm-hmm. like much more. And I wonder what it is that, you know, really still binds people to the idea of wanting to do the traditional thing. Like I, cause I've tried to figure this out for myself because I've never really wanted to pursue traditional because I just like being in control and doing the stuff I love and like you say sometimes mm-hmm. traditional can well, most of the time traditional can be a very long-winded process um yeah. and it's not to say like I'm not bashing traditional here it obviously has its place and does well um but it it really is a mindset shift to go from okay let's write in a way that's going to please someone so they can take my book versus I'm going to write from the stuff that I love the stuff that I'm passionate about the stuff that I can sort of do consistently and build upon and go down the route that is slower building but it makes me happy how did you how did you handle that mindset shift because like you say you you kind of were it brought up with the very literary view and then you suddenly yeah. went ah oh. and I know that personally for myself I went in a very very similar way and I still find it hard to um, reconcile with not writing as literary sometimes and writing more fun. And I don't know why that is. Yeah, it's it's a weird one. I mean, I, I don't know what it's like in the UK, but in in Oz and particularly, um, so I did all my education in, in Oz um, and there the literary scene is quite a bit uppity. Um, mm-hmm. And like I definitely faced 
the stigmas that we all know about indie publishing, like people assuming that your work isn't as good quality, that you couldn't get a publishing deal, um, you know, whatever else they say, like I heard it. Um, and the funny thing was, is that I got, um, because I'd run this writing website, I had a blog, like I was documenting a lot of this stuff just for me really. Mm. Um, but I had, I had someone from the big five reach out about my young adult fantasy book that I was intending on self-publishing. And they said that they'd be interested in reading it. Like they requested it. Um, and at this point I was like 99% sure I was going to indie publish like the previous experience had just done my head in. And also I was getting really excited about, you know, the creative control and about the production of the book from start to finish and, you know, all that nerdy stuff that we love. Um, and sort of, I guess what pushed me over the edge was like, I had this conversation with this, uh, this editor and she said that she really wanted to pass it on to the, the YA commissioning person. Um, and I was like, okay, like how, how long do you think it's going to take for you to, um, you know, read it and then potentially give me your opinion and then potentially give me an offer. And she said something like four or eight weeks. And at this point I was like nearly ready to publish. And I was mm -hmm. just like, nah, I'm, I'm good. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, it just like, it just confirmed that if, if I went down that road, like it was the first in a trilogy, if I went down that road, I wasn't only giving up control over that first book, but I would have zero control over when the next book came out mm -hmm. and the next book, if they came out at all, because people can publish the first in a, in a trilogy and it doesn't do well. And then they don't publish the rest. So yeah, I think all these things sort of like started to click into place for me and just sort of confirmed that indie was the right way to go for me. And that's not to say that, you know, over the years, part of me hasn't gone, oh, would I go trad? I don't know. But the more and more I see about it is unless you're a lead title, like you're not going to get the right attention, the right marketing budget, blah, 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 that would make it worth going trad over indie. Mm. Um so I've had all these like little realizations along the way, basically that have just gone. Yep. That was, that was the right decision. Yeah. Cause there's a lot of, um, there are a lot of people now who I'm trying to think I'm trying to um, say this. So one thing that I've observed a lot over the last few years is that the people that seem to be getting a lot of book deals and doing a lot of the good things are people who have already built the audience. So mm. at the minute publishers of all kinds seem very, very interested in, approaching influencers with x thousands of followers like i know a lot of youtubers that have got book deals i know a lot of sort of instagram people that have got book deals for for the different things they're doing um so it really does seem to be even harder these days if you're a, an undiscovered author to put that work forward and then like you say each step in the process is just the the odds of you actually getting published just less and less and less because it's you know say it's yeah. like five percent of getting yourself through the door and then within that, it's like 50% that that will carry on through the editing process and then like going on to publication and everything else. So it does shrink as you go on. When did you first come up against or when did you first discover indie publishing? And was it through an author? Was it through sort of KDP? How did, how did the actual um, discovery of indie look for you? Um, I think I think I, I already followed Joanna Penn just because like I, I had my, when I was doing my masters, when I was, you know, submitting manuscripts and stuff, I had my pulse on the publishing scene in general. Um, and I was constantly researching publishing and people in publishing. And I think I must've come across Joanna Penn and this would have been uh, maybe like 2013 or something. And so I followed her from then on. And then I discovered Mark Dawson. And that's it's very similar route to mm -hmm. a lot of people in the industry. Joanna Penn, Mark Dawson, <laughs> David Gochran. You know, yeah. you just sort of work your way through um the kind of pioneers, I guess, of of the indie scene. Um, so yeah, I I was reading Joanna's blog for ages. Um, and then when I kind of decided that I was going to go indie, I invested in Mark Dawson's course, which was um, pivotal in, you know, your understanding of a lot of the technical side of it as well. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I, I did that. And uh, that very much helped set me up for a strong start, I think. Mm. And just to confirm, the first book that you did publish was Heart of Mist. Mm, yes. And that did modestly well. Am I right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
I've since realised that it did quite well. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't really know what to expect at the time. Um, but, yeah, so I published that in uh, August of 2017 and by January 2018 I quit my job, um, which was only a part-time gig anyway, but <laughs> thank you. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I, I don't think I really understood until really this year just how well that did um, and how much of a sort of outlier that was. Um, that's been a tough lesson to learn. <laughs> yeah, well, t- talk us through that process because, you know, a lot of people, uh, especially self-published, we we teach a lot, I know I teach a lot about um, the long tail and about like the first book may do some good things, but obviously it's in the next book that builds out, the next book that builds out, and it's kind of that exponential curve up of backlist and product mm-hmm. that makes it um, a sustainable career. What was it like when you put that book out and you were hit with this sort of roaring success? Like you say, you weren't, you hadn't normalised that as big or you thought that was relatively normal. Um, but how, how did you feel at the time when you were able to look at that and go, oh my God, I can I can do this full time? Uh, I, to be honest, like I don't remember having this, you know, crazy moment of like, oh my God, this is happening. I think I'm quite methodical and like I just I just took it and was like okay now what now what now what I'm very uh I I did the top five um Clifton strengths things and they just sum up everything so well like my top one uh fuck now I'm not going to remember my top one oh no my (laughs) top one's focus my top one's focus and my second one's futuristic so literally that just sums up my approach to my entire publishing process like Mm part of mist did well but by the time it did well I was already writing um rain of mist the second one and I was already trying to think of how to make that bigger and better how to make the next one bigger and better and so I don't think I ever really took stock of you know how well it was doing at the time and that's why now I look back and I'm like geez that actually did really well and I had no idea mm-hmm. um so yeah I, I didn't have this sort of big realization until you know four years later <laughs> mm-hmm. which is always helpful to look at that in hindsight yeah. but I think I think it is always good to look at where you came from and try and sort of um just see the different factors that might have attributed to that success I mean was there anything that you can think of specifically around that time that would have helped it boost up the ranks because I mean obviously 2021 as we're talking it's now December 2021 so nearly 2022 um it's a very different publishing landscape to what it was in 2017 so was there anything particular in 2017 that you can kind of correlate that to at all um like I mean it was just generally easier back then I think to get your book in front of people um I couldn't tell you about how crowded the market was or anything like that um it's not something I knew enough about indie publishing back then to have taken any notice about um and I very much back then modeled all my marketing and my launch strategies pretty much on more of a traditional um sort of plan I didn't know much about AMS ads I didn't know much about the promo sites Um, that knowledge didn't come until much later Um, but I did I did model it off I think um, a launch plan that Mark Dawson gave in his um, course which was like a 99 cent launch followed up by the next week you put the price up and the next week you put the price Mm. up again Um, and this is 101 yeah 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 just just the basic one um but yeah, so apart from that, like I was, I did a massive outreach marketing campaign. I reached out to hundreds of book bloggers and reviewers. Um, I was very targeted in my approach. So I would get my comp titles and kind of reverse engineer reviews from them. So I'd in, like, for example, with Heart of Mist, um, Th- uh, Throne of Glass by Sarah J. Mass, that's a big comp title for me. And so I'd write in Google Throne of Glass um, reviews and then look at the people who were reviewing Throne of Glass, check out their review policy, reach out to them with a professional media kit, with a pitch, blah, blah, blah. Um, And I did that about 400 times. So (laughs) um, that I think that was a major, major part of that strategy that, Mm -hmm. um, you know, boosted the success. But um, as I've sort of discovered in the last year or so, the book blogging community isn't nearly as big as it was in 2017. Like half the blogs that I used to approach don't exist anymore. So um, that and the aggressive pricing strategy, I think, were pretty big contributors to that initial bump. Yeah, but I, lo- I absolutely love how in-depth you did go with that initial marketing surge. Um, and mm. it does seem that, you know, 
having a background from studying publishing and the writing and everything else has has really given you that that sort of critical way to look at market research making sure that you know your book's gonna fit in the place that it sits best you said you were very hot on who your comp titles were which even people that publish three or four books at this point you you can argue that they don't quite know who it is they're competing against mm. and where they want to sit in the market um yeah where does this methodical brain of yours come from <laughs> has it always been like yeah. that like since you were like a little girl or yeah. is it sort of as you've grown up yeah I've always been like incredibly disciplined um incredibly focused and to the point where like it's almost irritating um <laughs> like to me and it, in daily life this stuff frustrates the hell out of me mm-hmm. and you know like makes me sound like a bit of an asshole but you know up until I did the Clifton Strengths thing, I didn't really understand. And I, I thought, like, why isn't it, why doesn't everybody think like this sort of thing? Um, and I couldn't understand why, you know, certain people weren't as disciplined or they couldn't understand why I wanted to be that disciplined. Um, and it, it wasn't really until I did the, the Clifton Strengths, which I've only done top five. I'm not even fully immersed in it. Mm-hmm. Um, so <laughs> well, I was, I was talking to, um, to Sasha and, uh, <laughs> I was joking that because my top strength is focus, it's not allowing me to go and do the rest of them. Like, I'm like, I'm focused now. I'm focused uh-huh. on my top five <laughs> and everything else I need to do. So I don't want to bother with the, the 34. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't really know. I don't know where it's, where it's come from. Um, but it's kind of nice to know it's like a strength rather than a, a pain in the ass thing. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, I'm, I'm the same with some of mine. Um, but yeah, so that was so 2017. Heartmiss came out. We're in 2021, um, and mm-hmm. you started a new series, Curse um, of the Siren Queen. Yep. Yes, and you have two books out in that series so far. Am I correct? Yes. Yes. How have you found the launch in 2021 versus launching in 2020 uh, 2017? <laughs> um, very different. Very different. Um, I think like anything that I say about it is just sort of speculation and like gut feeling. Um. But I suspect, so in between uh, War of Mist, which was the third and final book in the Oromir Chronicles, which was the series that did quite well, in between that and um, the first book in Curse of the Siren Queen, I published a collection of short stories, which were prequel stories to the Oromir Chronicles, and I published just an ebook omnibus of the Oromir Chronicles. So I stupidly thought that, by publishing a collection of short stories and an omnibus that that was my publishing for that year. And it sort of bought me time to write um, this new series and to develop all this like amazing stuff that I was going to do. And yeah, it, it just didn't go that way. So um, Dawn of Mist, which is the collection of short stories, like it was well received by people, but there's flaws in it in that it's a prequel collection. It doesn't go on the series page for Oromir Chronicles, so mm. far less people see it. Um, I had conditioned all these readers to expect these chunky fantasy novels that are like epic proportions, and then I gave them a collection of short stories, which they enjoyed, but like I think they would have preferred, um, you know, a full-length fantasy novel. Um, and so... That year, which I sort of viewed as me buying myself a gap year to put as much effort into this new series as possible, I think that really um, sort of paused the momentum of, I guess, my career for a little bit. Um, And then I sort of went into publishing A Lair of Bones with the same expectations that I had for Heart of Mist in 2017. And... Well, not same expectations. I didn't have any when I published it, but afterwards when it did well. That's your bar. Um, that's, that's your starting point. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I was like, well, that's what, what publishing a launch, like publishing a book is. Um, and no, it's not. Um, it, it's very challenging to get people into a new series, even if they're a fan of your previous work. Um, the, the book still did well, like um, A Layer of Bones and the sequel with Dagger and Song, they both were Amazon bestsellers, which is, you know, that's a nice thing to be able to say. Um, but I've definitely found with this new series that it's more the long game than it mm. is, you know, that like, yeah, I, I couldn't even tell you like sales figures or anything like that off the top of my head. But um, A Layer of Bones and the, the sequel, they're gaining momentum now 
and a layer mm. of bones was published in July. So I've waited however many months for it to really start, you know, chugging along, whereas Heart of Mist was, um, you know, flying from the get-go. But also my strategy sort of changed a little bit in this series in that I didn't do a 99-cent launch. Um, I launched at full price. Um, what else did I do? I've also, like, this is the first year that I've published two books in one year because the Oromir Chronicles were all one book a year. Um, so it'll be interesting to see, because uh, with Dagger and Song only came out about three and a half weeks ago, um, so it's still relatively new and it's only the second in a series of four. Um, but, yeah, I'm really understanding this time around how different it can be publishing a series and how how much more of, like, a long game it is. Um, very different. It's just super different to... Um, to what it was for the Oromi Chronicles, which initially I was panicked. Um, it was not <laughs> what I expected. Yeah. My bank account did not look how I expected, um, but it is sort of on the up now. And I think it's taken a little while to kind of get people to invest in a new series. Um, and, and one thing I haven't really been overly clear about is that it's actually set in the same world as the Oromir Chronicles, which is part of a much longer term strategy. Um, so maybe I should have been more clear about that, but you don't want to isolate people who haven't read the first series. So, you know, it's it's all just this massive learning curve, really. Mm. And you can hear that meth methodical brain going as you're talking, especially when you're looking <laughs> like the strategy and everything else. Um, I will say for, for people who haven't checked out Alera Phones, it is a fantastic book. I have read it. Um, so congrats oh, on you. crafting Another amazing one. Um, <laughs> Thanks. How, how have you found, because um, I know obviously you mentioned that Heart Mist skyrocketed. This one was a bit of a scary launch because it didn't quite start where you wanted to. And it's like, um, it's fantastic to hear that it's growing and it's kind of going the direction that you want to. Um, how, how did you find in those first few weeks, um, as much as you're happy to share, sort of like reconciling with that panic of that book? Because, you know, this isn't, this isn't a unique situation. There are lots of authors who, you know, have had success and then they'll bring out a new series and it doesn't quite go where they want it to. How, how did you approach kind of the next steps in going, right, how do I, quote, fix this? Yeah, um, well, to be like brutally honest, like after Alera Phones came out, I think normally, like in a normal circumstance after a launch, I always have a bit of like a mental, a mental emotional dip um you know it's I think we've talked about this um yes. on other platforms um yeah you kind of get the post-launch blues a little bit mm -hmm. um and so I get that even if a book earns out in the, the first week you know <laughs> I, I don't know what's wrong with me it just happens um but so a layer of bones I had that which is normal um and then I just sort of had this creeping dread that fuck this book isn't doing how it should like is it even going to earn out what I've put into the cover, into the editing, which is something I never even considered, which shows just how warped like my thinking was about how well the other ones had done. Um, but like, I, I don't know. I, I just, I never really considered that I was going to do anything else other than continue the, the series. Like also because I bought myself that like gap year. Um, I was quite far into the series already, which is quite scary. So I think when Alera Phones came out, um, book two was, uh, must have been with Beta Readers, um, like it was done. Um, and I'd started writing book three. So what was I going to do? Like, <laughs> you know, I couldn't really not publish it. Um, and I'm in, I'm in a, I have to admit, like I'm in a position where I've not got any dependents. Um, I haven't got a mortgage at the moment. Um, so I am in a situation that I can afford to take these sort of bigger financial risks, um, which I can really appreciate not everybody can do. Um, but so that was a decision on my part to just keep pressing forward. Um, any money I was losing or had lost was... I guess I framed it as an investment in future Helen, um, regardless of how the, you know, Alera phones and the other books did, they were going to be in a back catalogue eventually. And hopefully, you know, in the future, I would have a, another series that went gangbusters and, you know, the rest of the people went back and read them. Um, so, yeah, I think like, it just didn't really seem like there were other options, but also with this, uh, with Curse of the Siren Queen, 
I very much have used that um, series as like an escape from just life. I mean, I was writing it during COVID, um, you know, any sort of personal stuff like, like, and, and just the mental strain of being an author and having to do this stuff for a living. Um, when I get to write about, you know, a layer made of bones or like a epic quest across realms and sword fights and magic, like, I think that's probably my dream way of escaping anyway. So it's funny that I escaped, you know, worrying about writing by writing, basically. Um. <laughs> I love that. But it's really, it's, I mean, it's a brutal lesson that there's a couple of brutal lessons there that, you know, I've learned myself, yeah. which is number one, as you say, it is difficult to get people to hop across series, um, mm-hmm. which is bizarre because you're the same writer and you're producing the thing, but you forget that sometimes the, the readers aren't following you. They're following that story which is mm-hmm. horrible to learn. But then at the same time, um, the the other brutal truth, the fact that like I very much escape from the work that I do with fiction by writing fiction as well. And there's like almost a split in my head of which is which, if that makes sense. So like the creation is, yeah. is very selfish endeavor. It's, it's for me, I'm mm-hmm. sat there, I blank everything else out. Whereas when you're publishing and marketing and doing all that kind of stuff, it just feels like a different machine. Yeah, definitely. I compartmentalize the two different parts. Mm. Like, yeah, very yeah. much separated. Definitely. Because we, we've had conversations about um, your increase in productivity. And as people know, I'm very kind of like keen on trying to find ways to <laughs> no. maximize productivity <laughs> and go down that route. Um, you published two books this year. Obviously, you said that part of that um, you can attribute to having a bit of a longer tail between series. Um, mm-hmm. But you are just generally at this minute producing more stuff. What have you done specifically that you can think of that is helping you be more productive and write more and get more books out into the world? Um, I think, I mean, it's it's not super technical or anything, but just the sort of uh, mindset shifts, shift of I'm a full-time author. My priority each day should be getting the new words down. Mm-hmm. Um, and before, like, I think it's very easy to fall into the sort of... Um, drudgery of answering your emails doing social media doing marketing doing ads like that could take over your entire day and also I've found and I've learned I'm I'm a morning person and I need to write first thing in the morning if I start with emails and ads and social media my brain is fried by lunchtime and I don't want to write at the end of the day whereas if I start at start writing at the beginning of the day I can write all day or I can answer some emails at lunch or do this, that, and then come back to it. Um, but it's just, I guess, for me, learning what has worked and what hasn't worked. And I'm sure you've talked about this a lot on your various podcasts and stuff. But <laughs> this this year I started um, tracking um, word count just in a very basic spreadsheet. Um, and, you know, if you look at it, best times are in the morning. Um, and also if I exercise and shower and stuff at a certain time and then go back into it I come back into it with like a fresh head and you know it's just I guess learning um what works for you and yeah definitely just that very simple mindset shift of like get the words done that's your actual job and anything else can come later and I think you know especially with things like emails and social media it's never urgent it is never as urgent as you think it is it can wait um, you can answer it on your lunch break. You can answer it in front of the TV, whereas I can't do those things. Um, like I can't write when I do those things. Um, so, yeah, I think that sort of answers that. Yeah, yeah I had um, a colleague whose email system was um, basically ignore the email unless they send a repeat email asking again and it's urgent. Because, oh, I like that. Yeah, because then it's like <laughs> normally people send the email just to get it off of their own heads to get the, the mm. ask out. And it's only when they really require the thing and they're like, can you have this now? It's like, yeah, cool. And then you shoot it back and it just saves your own worrying and doesn't clear your inbox, but it's just an easier way of handling it. Um, I would yeah. like to get a little bit more granular if that's okay. Like, so mm-hmm. you write in the mornings, what does your typical morning look like? What time do you sort of like get up and get to the, the keyboard and, and, you know, the specifics of times and things? Um, okay. So I'm usually up at seven. Um, I need a tea first thing in the morning, go make a tea. Um, I work to an outline um, and that, oh, that's, there we go. That's what's helped me with the productivity, the outline. Because um, <laughs> with, with Heart of Mist and, and all the Oromir books, 
I think I had a general sense of where they were all going, um, but that was it. And I ran into a lot of problems when you when you publish a book, when you write a book, then publish it, then write the next one and publish it. Those are all set in stone then, and mm-hmm. you're kind of fucked for the next couple of ones. Um, <laughs> you know, when when characters are in the wrong place, but it takes ten weeks by ship to get there, and then you've only got two days, and you've got to find out some magical way to get them there. Um, and that very much stalled me. It in, it increased the time that the book was with beta readers. It increased the time that I sat there just like tearing my hair out about all these plot problems. Um, and so with um, Curse of the Siren Queen, I found sort of an outline template that I thought suited how I wanted the book to be structured. And I used that. I outlined it chapter by chapter, scene by scene, um, quite granular and then I'd have when I like come to sit at my desk 7 30 in the morning I have my outline on one screen and then my word document on the other and I off I go sounds it sounds simple it's probably not that streamlined but um yeah that's the gist of it yeah <laughs> yeah no I and also it sounds simple but I also know sort of the mental taxation as well of putting yourself into that routine and getting down and getting into the zone and all that kind of stuff um yeah, how long do you typically write outline for outline is a Sorry. Um, How long do I typically write for? So this year um, I've tried, I've tried 30 minute sprints. Um, They're usually quite, quite good. Um, It sort of ebbs and flows how I approach the the sprints, depending on where I'm at with the book and how annoyed I am at myself. Um, But yeah, usually 30 minute sprints or if like um, a couple of weeks ago, I was at the end of a draft and I was like, I just have to get this done. It's doing my head in the 30 minute sprints were annoying me. So I just sat and got it done. <laughs> yeah. um, and it, I knew I wasn't being as productive. Like I was staring at the screen. I was like dicking around with other stuff, but it was it just, that was the only way Focus. I could get it done. Yeah. <laughs> so um, yeah, it, it changes, but yeah, I've been doing, I've been doing sprints like usually about 30 minutes. Um, and when I'm really disciplined about it, 30 minutes, I force myself to get up, go make a tea, go breathe the air outside for five minutes and then come back. Cause I find I could just sit at the computer, check an email, do this, that, but then I'm not refreshed when I come back to the next sprint. So that's the sort of strategy at the moment anyway. Yeah. I like the fact as well that you mentioned uh, exercise um, in the mm. morning as well to kind of like refresh your mind and everything. Is that, is that something that you work into your life every day or is that kind of an ad hoc thing that you do when you feel like you require it? Um, I try every day. So I used to be really active when I was younger. I did soccer, I did ballet, I did like everything under the sun. Um, and really it's only been, so I moved to New Zealand about three years ago and I haven't been as active here because sometimes the weather's horrendous, like it's snowing, it's cold. Um, but a couple, it must've been about like six months ago or so we got a, an exercise bike. Um, and that literally gives me no excuse. Like I cannot not exercise. Like the thing's right there. I can watch TV while I exercise, like, you know, so I, I try like, and I don't do much, you know, like I'm not super fit. I would, that's something I'd like to be, you know, delving into a bit next year, maybe exercising twice a day. Um, cause you just feel so much better mentally. You feel mm-hmm. better. Um, and, you know, I, there was a couple, of, a couple of months where I did it first thing in the morning, exercise, shower, sat down. I was like, wow, I've already achieved so much um, and I haven't actually started work. Um, now I'm sort of doing it midday when I start to feel a bit sluggish um, mm. and I need, like, my brain needs a rest. So it just depends, um, I guess, I think where I'm at with drafting because um, at each stage of drafting um, I'm very different, like, mentally Um but yeah, the exercise definitely helps. Um, I'm not as good as I should be. I'm trying every day for 30 minutes. Um, and I'm not, I'm not like killing myself on the exercise bike. I'm watching like friends or something, you know, um, (laughs) I went through a stage where I was, I was watching the 20 books to 50 K, um, conference videos. I was like, wow, I'm so productive. Um, (laughs) yeah, you know, it's, it's not, I'm not like doing CrossFit or anything, but Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's a start. So it's one of those things, I guess, that you've got to gradually introduce yourself. And that's why I'm doing the exercise bike and not on too hard a gear because if I hate it, I'm not going to do it. So, yeah. 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 And like you say, there's a resistance sometimes. If you've got the bike literally in a 
position in which you can just get to it, get on it, and you don't have to question it. As opposed to say, if you're doing outdoor cycling and you have to like go and get the bike and then you have to go and do this. And like, even though it doesn't feel that heavy, there, there can be resistance between such simple things and you'll find excuses to, oh, to just absolutely. not Oh, absolutely. Yeah. My, like here, here, where I live now is a very small town. And if I went out running, I would inevitably run into 10 people I know. And <laughs> think about what exercise gear I'm wearing. Like, have, have I showered today? Do I need a shower? Like, you know, all these extra things that really don't matter, but the stupid things that I worry about mm-hmm. and that I'll use as, a, as an excuse not to go. So literally I can roll out of bed, chuck whatever I'm wearing on and then just jump on the bike and either listen to podcasts and the 20 book stuff or if I'm feeling like, a, you know, a big marshmallowy sort of day, I watch Friends or Modern Family or something just to yeah. switch off. But it makes such a difference when you do it and you mm-hmm. always feel so much better after you've done it. It just sometimes it's that, fuck's sake, like another thing I've got to tick off my list. So I put on my to-do list bike and shower every <laughs> nice. day just so I can tick them off. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Because what, what I find amazing about exercise is that everyone knows that even just a little bit of exercise is going to help you in the long run. And it does clear your head, like the science approves it. It gets all the good endorphins and things running around your body. But, and I I try and I'm not saying this like in any way to be derogatory. Like I I literally struggle with this myself. There are so many things I know that I could do that are simple, that would make me feel better, would make my life easier. And you just don't do them. Like there's like a resistance to something where like, you know, it will help you, but it's easier to do this other thing, even though it's going to make you feel like crap in the long run. Um, Yeah just just an out, outside thought how <laughs> how do you recharge how do you sort of fill that creative well and give yourself that downtime between you know pummeling out books yeah that is something I struggle with massively um yeah I I'm not I'm not great at it um I've I'm much better at it now that I live in New Zealand um and I don't live alone because uh, when I lived in Oz I had an apartment to myself Um, And if I didn't have like a social event on that night, you just have dinner and then you go back to the computer or you pretend like you're chilling out watching TV, but you got your computer on your lap and you're answering emails and stuff. Um, Whereas now like my, my partner's quite good in that he's like, what are you still working for? What are you doing? Thought we were watching this, thought we were going this place, you know, Um, or we'll make dinner together. And it just sort of like breaks up the day. Um, and having that sort of accountability with someone that you've got to show up um, and be present with them, like ask them about their day and stuff, which I really enjoy. But when I lived alone, like, what was I going to do? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I'm, I will so, take a note now. Find a girlfriend. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, he's, I mean, to be fair, he's, he's a very special, special person. Um, and he is very good in encouraging me to get outside to, um, you know, on the weekend, if I open the laptop, what are you doing? Oh, I'm just, just doing this thing. No, no, we're going here. We're doing this. We're having drinks. We're having cocktails. Um, so he's very good at um, kind of pulling me out of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of like refilling the, the creative well and stuff, that's something I'm trying to really do at the end of this year because I feel like I haven't read as much as I wanted to read um, for pleasure. I haven't... Um, stayed in touch with friends back home as well as I should have because I'm working there's a time difference like similar to the exercise stuff there's always a barrier if you let there be a barrier mm-hmm. um and so yeah I'm I'm trying to be more sort of mindful about all that stuff I definitely want to be able to read more because you know I'll, I'll read a book and get like 10 more ideas you know for something else so it does have this like the creative well thing um and we live in a in such a beautiful place. Like you've seen some of the photos yeah, um, of where we live. Yeah. So, you know, just going out on the weekend for a walk or, you know, to to a friend's house and looking out on people's balconies and there's mountains and lakes and stuff everywhere. Um, Not jealous. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not jealous at all. Um, you would love the hikes here. Uh-huh. Um, so we we do we do some of the hikes and and things like that. Um, but yeah, it, it's definitely an area that. I still need to actively work on and I'm, I'm very aware of that (laughs) yeah no I do find that because for people that don't know I do live alone I definitely struggle with that idea of like well what else is there to do in like an evening you just crack on and it it was much easier having those boundaries when I was in a relationship and even with the exercise I used to set my alarm quite early 
And then I would get up the minute my alarm went off because I didn't want to like disturb my ex too much. It was like, mm-hmm. you couldn't just sit and snooze because then you're affecting someone else. So, yeah. you know, you get up and you just do. Um, and it's very, it's a whole different beast. I'm still trying to like work on that now that I've, because it's only recently been that I've moved back into living by myself. So I'm still yeah. trying to like get used to a lot of that stuff. Um, I mean, it's exciting though, living by yourself and you get to oh, structure, structure your whole, I loved it too. Um, and you structure your whole day, how you want it, answer to no one, like, mm-hmm. you know, um, it just does have, like, I guess the 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 downfalls of not having someone right there who you're yeah. accountable to. And that's yeah. that's it, really. It swings and roundabouts <laughs> both ways. Like, it's, yeah, just, it's exactly. just what you have to try to get used to. Um, I want to be respectful of your time. So I do have one more question before we round mm-hmm. out this interview. And that question is, Helen Shira, why do you write? Oh, <laughs> Um I think I think it's going to be the same as a lot of other people. It is very much sort of a compulsion for me. Um, I can't imagine not doing it. When I'm not doing it, I'm thinking about, you know, story ideas and how to improve things. Um, I, I think a lot of us writers, you just can't switch your brain off from it. It's it's not just a job. It's also kind of part of your personality. Um, and so I'm just constantly thinking about it. And during times when I haven't had an ongoing project, I am frustrated and restless and irritated. Um, and I think me? I just, <laughs> I just think I need that that outlet. And the, you know, it's yeah, I can't really describe it more than that. It's a compulsion. It's a problem. <laughs> I love that. Uh, where can people find out more about yourself and everything that you're working on? Um, you can find me at helenshoira.com. Um, I'm sure you'll have to provide a link because of my name's, be my name's a little, <laughs> little problematic. Um, and yeah, most of my information is, is on there. Um, you can download like free prequel novellas to my Curse of the Siren Queen series there to check out the sort of style that I use. Um, and I'm also pretty active on, on Instagram and I give like a lot of sort of behind the scenes look at author life and you know works in progress um i'm a massive nerd for all that stuff so yeah probably instagram and my website are the best places perfect and i will attest check out her stuff it is fantastic i have read it so it's done approved um and <laughs> helen thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today oh thank you so much for having me it's really fun talking about writing with you always <laughs> no worries and a massive thank you to you the listeners for tuning in and as always if you're looking to level up your writing and activate your author career head on over to activatedauthors.com to find out all about our community, our resources and everything we do. And also just an extra bonus, we haven't actually touched on in this episode. You can find Helen hanging over there on our Slack group and join her alongside our other expert panelists every single month for our live member Q and A's. Activate your energy.